I have a serious question for you. When you hear the sirens alerting you of an incoming missile attack, how much time do you have to get to the bunker? What? That's not something you've ever had to think about? Well, this week's guest lives it every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 105 of the Resilient Journey podcast, presented by the Resilience Think Tank. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this week I'm joined by Dotan Sagi, CEO of Sinten, an Israeli-based company that helps organizations improve their crisis management exercises. Dotan and I talk about what he did to communicate with his employees and customers during the recent attack on Israel and demonstrates what resilience looks like in the face of real danger. We also talk about improving crisis management by using predictive analytics and understanding the interactions of decision makers. This is Next Level. Dotan, welcome to the podcast. Please take a minute and introduce yourself. So my name is Dotan Sagin. I'm so happy to be here, uh, Mark. Thank you for having me today. It's my uh, pleasure. As I said, my name is Dotan Sagi. I am the CEO of uh, Sintem. Um, we're a platform that enables organizations to prepare uh, for crisis. What we've done is digitize tabletop exercises. I come from a background of Homeland Security. I used to work for Al Airlines. Uh, I used to be the head of the training academy for all security personnel. And I worked as a consultant on crisis management in many places around the world, from the USA through Europe, Southeast Asia, and of course, Israel. And about a few years ago, I was uh, going through tabletop exercises, which was my expertise, and I got a little frustrated by the way we were doing them with those PowerPoints where everyone sits in a room and they put a V at the end of the day for compliance, but uh, you don't really learn anything from it. And I brought a bunch of very, very clever people into my team, and we started building a digitized platform, but not just one that would enable you to have fun, that would analyze the way people make their decisions. Uh, and that is how we are working from around the world. We sit in Tel Aviv. We have an office in the United States, in Phoenix, Arizona. And we work from the United States through Europe, Israel, Southeast Asia, and even Australia. We have governmental agencies from banks, ministries of finance, treasuries, Fortune 500 companies, and some of the largest consulting groups you know. I prefer not to mention names, as you, as you may understand. No, I, I completely understand. And one of the things that you downplayed um, is where we're doing this call from. Uh, you are in your office in Tel Aviv, Israel, in the midst of uh, something that has grabbed the entire world's attention. And after the brutal attacks by Hamas on Israel over the weekend, and we were talking before we started the, the episode, and, and you warned me. You said that during this episode, alarms might go off and we might have to stop. I mean, that is a real possibility. And you said that you have 90 seconds from the time of the uh, alarm for the missile alert to get to the bomb shelter. And you said, tell me what you said about 90 seconds. You feel a little bit guilty about it. I do. I do. Because 90 seconds is a lot, Mark. I know exactly where the shelter is. Every one of my employees knows where it is. I'm sitting in a building now in Tel Aviv overlooking the city and the Mediterranean Sea. And if something happens, 90 seconds, I have one floor to run down, getting to the uh, uh, protected room that I, we have there. But there are other places in Israel where the time is 10 seconds. And I have employees where it is 30 seconds. 
So when I'm on a Zoom call with them, my, I have an application that shows me everywhere there are alarms. It will only alert me with noise when it's in my region, but I can see all my personnel. So if I'm on a Zoom call with one of my personnel and I see it, I know that they're going to leave this Zoom call and I know they have 30 seconds and I know they're sh in shelter. And uh, that's how I can follow if anyone in any part of the day is under fire. And by the way, just a few minutes ago, one of my employees had to leave a meeting and go into a shelter in the city of Ashdod. So this is a day to daily occurrence. Have you followed back up with that employee? Do you know uh, that they're safe? So the reason I was a little late <laughs> was me following up with them. But yes, it is me following up with them, making sure that everyone's okay. And sometimes it's 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 not that short because sometimes there's a barrage. And in some of the rooms, uh, there is no contact. Yesterday, I was on my way in Tel Aviv, uh, and there was a barrage to Tel Aviv in the city where I live in. Uh, and I left. I had to stop the car on the road, and I lay down. And, you know, your instinct is to call home because your family now is on its way to its shelter, my wife and my uh, youngest son. But you know that you can't call them because if you call them, the 90 seconds, they will waste them on a call with you. Their mission is to get to the shelter. And I know that when they're in the shelter, they can't talk to me because there's no uh, reception where uh, in our shelter at home. So you have those 10 minutes where you're lying on the street. I always uh, take a picture, send out to the family groups. And uh, so everyone knows that we're you're okay. And you look upward to the sky when you're outside and trying to hide because maybe you'll see a glimpse of something. But yes, yes, you have to protect yourself and look around. Maybe there are people with children or elderly that you may need to help. And if something does happen in those 90 seconds, you're also thinking, what do I do if it does land here and it does hit here? Where do I go? What do I do? How do I help? 90 seconds is a long time to think. It is a long time to think about things. Wow, that is uh, an amazing perspective. I want to point something out. You're the second guest in a row that reached out to me and said, hey, I'd like to be on your podcast. And I love that because it speaks of the relevance of the podcast and that people care enough about it to want to be on it. But you didn't want to come on in response to what's going on in Israel. You wanted to come on and talk about tabletop exercising and, and the exciting things that you're doing. And I promise I want to get to that. But I've always found it important to learn from what other people go through in their crisis, even if it's not something that that I'm necessarily going through. And I'm sitting here now something like 10,000 kilometers away from you. And so I'm not experiencing it. I don't have the real life experience of wondering if a missile alarm is going to go off. And so I want to take just a couple of minutes here and, and talk to you about what you did this past weekend uh when news of the attacks first broke and i want to start by asking you about your crisis response how you communicated with your people and what you're doing to keep track of your people because you you're a small team but you have 13 people in israel so walk me through saturday and sunday and how you communicated with them please so you know it starts at 6 30 in the morning when we're sleeping, it's a Saturday, it's a weekend, we sleep at 6.30. And my wife says, Dotan, you know, she wakes me up, she says, I think there's an alarm, there's a siren. And I say, and I, and I tell her, I don't think so, but by the time I wake, it's already quiet. So I open the TV and you see our TV has these orange alerts. And I see, I see the places where we live and all the 
um, but it's already the siren is over. There's no re no reason now to go to the shelter. Uh, and we start opening the TV and I see the barrage. So I send messages to my employees where I see the places where they live on the TV. I know where they're being bombarded. Some of them answer, some of them don't. I just want to make sure that they're awake. These are young people. They party all night. It's not that easy to wake them. But right. also, you don't know where people are at 6.30. Maybe they're out partying, as we know there was a party in attack. And as the minutes go by, you know, you, you get organized. You think it's another one of those events where someone on the other side has decided to fire a barrage uh, and it'll be over and that's it and everything goes back to normal. But you see that it just doesn't end. And in the hour or two afterwards, the, the rumors of something that is very serious in the South start happening. And I start checking with my employees to see and they start answering me. So I know that they're in their houses. I know that no one's outside. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we start getting ourselves prepared, I... At that point, I have employees that are more religious, so I know they won't answer me on a Shabbat. It's the weekend here in Israel. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm saying I'll, I'll reach out to them only if X happens and I'll call. I'm not going to be dramatic at this point. Um, but towards uh, one o'clock, I understand already that this is not one of those, you know, this is this is big. Now, no, not a lot of information is coming out. At that time, I have already family members in one of the kibbutzim that are fighting. They are fighting for their lives. Uh, and we start getting that information. So I know that this is much more serious. So I called Chelsea, one of the, one of my best employees, and uh, we work together. Uh, first of all, we have a, um, a message that is prepared. I'll be very frank. Just we have to go over the English every time and maybe fine-tune it. No, that's uh, right. That's, I call that's it, good uh, Yes, we call it um, like in a magazine where you have bullets, messages that are ready to be automatically sent out. Um, but I, I, you know, I fine tune it a little. We go over uh, because I understand that in minutes, our clients are going to see that something serious is happening. So we send out a message. I don't have a lot of information. We say we have probably seen that something is happening in Israel. I want to assure you we are continuing. All our personnel are safe. A lot of our clients, they're our friends. You know, we're in, in a daily contact with them, our yeah. partners and clients. I want you to know everything is safe. Uh, we may be a little slower in our responses, uh, but we are cloud-based and, you know, all the answers that I give. So everyone knows that one, we're safe, two, we're ready to continue working. Uh, and we start examining what happens as this gets serious. Um, and as the hours go by, we understand that this is big, and and my understanding is, even though Israel will only declare war a day or two afterwards, that I won't go into the legal uh, uh, definition of war, but as I define it, this is something big. This is not the usual clash, and we have to get prepared for that, including talking with one of my partners if we have to offer our employees housing in the center of Israel if the clashes in the south get and we we get organized uh, in that manner as well but it's it's something very much at the back we still don't understand how serious this is going to to be uh, at night we understand that this is much bigger uh, it was important to me we have uh, two calls every day with all our team we were after a holiday so everyone was you know and Sunday no one was coming to the office anyway anyone anyone anyway driving Mm -hmm. uh, so I asked in the morning, instead of the midday meeting, everyone, and I asked this time, I send them a message, 
I want this message to be with video open because not every meeting we have with video open. Sometimes these young people, by the time they wake up, you know, they haven't fixed their beard and their hair. Uh, but I need, I want to see as I talk to each and every one of you, I want to see in your eyes. I want to see that you're okay. The the rumors, the, the information that's coming out. You understand that in the state of Israel, if you take the six degrees of separation, if you take the numbers that we were starting to see there, you understand that everyone is going to be affected. And I want to know that they're okay. We'll talk yeah. business later, but first of all, that they're okay. Then we'll talk, how do we continue our operations? It was Sunday. There was I didn't see a reason to reach out to our clients again. Most places around the world are not working on a Sunday. Right. Uh, but I did send messages asking with uh, most of them to meet on Monday for uh, team calls. So I would be able to explain and uh, tell them what's happening. Um, I will say this. I still didn't understand the magnitude of what we were going through. I'll be very frank. We're here we were ready. six days later, and I, I, I would predict we still don't know. We still don't know the magnitude. I, this is who knows where this is going to end up going, but somehow you're able to manage somewhat relatively normal business operations through this. Yes. And uh, we have clients that are using the system. We have done even uploads. Uh, we, we are, we are on our feet. We are working in Israel. Things may be a little slower. Mm -hmm. uh, people are now not carrying out simulations as they are really with weapons in the streets, in some places in combat um so we abroad we've been fine you know everything has been going on as we haven't even been slowed down but i will tell you this this is just the beginning i'm getting ready for for this escalating we know we already have i have uh, uh housing for people from the south that i that i if they may want to to move i will say this israelis don't move that easily we have this, we say, we'll fight it out. We are tough. We don't leave. You yeah. don't leave your country. You don't leave your city. You know, it goes from the country down to the local patriotism. Um, but we will take care of everyone that is uh, with any services that they need. Well, I asked you yesterday when we, we did our prep call for this, I said, is there really a safe part of Israel? And you said, you know, in relative degrees, there are some areas that are a bit safer. You know, it's a very difficult question because uh, what, what is safe? <laughs> but when I uh, look at Israel, I feel very safe if I have to compare myself to people in the South or in other places around the country. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I feel a little ashamed sometimes saying that I had to run to a shelter or now that I'm explaining this to you, people are on a, under different levels of pressure. Israel is a relatively safe place. Yes, we undergo a, a horrific situation now. But as a country, we're very, very resilient. And the safe is more on the mental side. And very quickly, very quickly, Mark, we moved from being down, being beaten in that one battle that we lost on that day to understanding that now we're winning a war. And uh, we're very, you know, I'm, I'm careful to say the word resilient, but we're very strong. I call it strong. You get up, we'll mourn our dead. As we move along, we'll mourn them later. I today came back from a funeral. Uh, we were there yesterday in a funeral, but we will get we get on our feet and we move forward. So when you say safe, 
I feel safe. The attacks that are happening, is it limited to military activity or are businesses and the government of Israel also seeing cyber attacks as part of this? What what are you seeing there? So first of all, I don't have the statistics. Uh, I would not approach. I was thinking before we have this call, I said, you'd probably ask me this question, but I didn't want to reach out to people that were now, you know, working in the government on these. So I said, we'll leave them alone to do their business. But I will say this. That's right. In wars today, you have four sectors, domain realms. I don't know how to define it. You have land, sea, ground, and the cyber. While we are not fighting a continuous battle on the first three, you have to understand that Israel is fighting a cyber war all the time. We have enemies, and these enemies, some of them, sometimes they say they're your friends, sometimes they're not exactly. You are fighting a cyber war all the time. So the escalation from routine to war would be in the first three, while on the fourth one, I'm telling you, there's not a lot of escalation to happen there in the past few weeks. All right, let, let's talk about crisis management here a little bit, a little bit broader. And I don't think there's anybody more qualified, maybe even in the entire world, to talk about crisis management than you right now. I'm going to leverage something that you said to me, again, when we were doing our prep calls. You realized what was going on in Israel, and you said, this isn't the normal one or two rockets, you know, comes flying into Israel. And I want to just let that hang there for a minute. And I want the listeners to to think about that. Think about your neighborhood, wherever you are, uh, in the States, in Canada, in the UK, Australia, wherever you are listening, you have rockets that you can say, well, this is not just the, the, the normal one or two rockets that might fly into my neighborhood. Just to level set that compared to what the rest of the world is going through. But I mentioned it just to talk about how qualified you are to talk about crisis management. And I know that you mentioned earlier that you're frustrated at the way that tabletop exercises were getting run and you wanted to do something about it. I think one of the areas, not to put words in your mouth, you talk about this, one of the areas maybe that you were frustrated was good decision-making when it came to crisis management. Talk about that and and what you saw and what you're trying to uh, help uh, improve as we go forward in that area. So when we look at how you manage crisis, you know, a lot of uh, organizations, you write a protocol, a procedure. If you're good, you base it on a risk analysis, the consequences, the threats, the risk, and so on and so forth. You decide what you want to prioritize and you prepare a procedure and then you examine it. But the truth is, that managing a crisis is a very you know, fluid situation where people are involved and they interact. And the human aspect is so important. A word I can say to you can change your behavior. The way that I influence the way that you behave is critical. So when we sit in a room and we show all the C-suite of an organization, hey, this crisis has happened. What would you do? What would you do? And everyone sees the same situation and they say, In many cases, you know, they listen to the boss and they say the same thing. In Israel, they listen to the boss. They say exactly the opposite thing. But everyone (laughs) hears the same thing and they say something. But the reality is not that. The reality is that most of us will be in different places and we will talk to each other as we try to create an operational picture. The decision will be based on how we understand the situation, what we know in order, you know, our procedures, our protocols, what has to happen, and how we 
are able together to get to there. A decision is not someone just saying, I will do this and this. There are many decisions which are influenced by the way we interact. And I had a feeling from my experience in crisis management that the only way is to let people participate in the crisis, but also see how they are influenced and how they influence others, mm. how they use words that influence others, how when they each one has a different conflicting piece of information, how do they work together to create that operational picture and that is the basis for the decision making and, and that's what you mean when you talk about uh the interactions between decision makers right exactly when how where and even the sentiment of the words i've seen simulations where you know especially on a global level someone will write something down and the other side from a cultural side doesn't understand what they've been told and will react and move in a different direction the ability to understand in an organization who influences the decision-making process is critical. We have this tendency to think it's the big boss or someone. Sometimes we find it's that one person at the end of the corridor that no one likes talking to, and they meet them sometimes at the cooler, the water cooler. But that person is the one that provides the information and has so much experience. They push others to make decisions. So that's the most influential person within an organization. We say, understand how you will behave. You know, we've been talking about cyber crisis. Organizations, they prepare uh, software and hardware. But in the reality, C-suite will make decisions that it doesn't matter what software or hardware you have may lead you in a totally different direction of what you anticipated or expected. So we believe in, first of all, understand how you think you will behave. We call it an expected behavior matrix. We oh. analyze the procedure. We say, okay, according to the procedure, this is how we would like to behave. And by the way, if you don't think so, if you don't want to behave like that, then go back and change your procedure. So you look at your procedure and you say, hey, these are the people making decisions. Wow, I didn't know that Dan is supposed to make 20% of my decisions in a crisis. And when you simulate, we create the same analytics and we say, this is your simulated uh, matrix. Now let's compare what you thought you would do and what you really did and where are the gaps and why these gaps exist. You're able to analyze that you can make your C-suite react and make better decisions in a crisis. Is that what you get into when you start talking about predicting how current protocols are going to affect the outcome? Is that is that what yes. that's based on? Exactly. We are able uh, to say, okay, this is your protocol, but certain things must happen. By the way, it will never be 100%, you know, you're expected and you're real. We're humans and that's okay. There will always be a gap. But there are certain things that have to happen. We call them KPIs. We brought them in from the business world, key performance indicators. Yep. You put them in your flow chart and you say, wow, the declaration of crisis is a KPI. It has to happen an X amount of minutes after I created the operational picture or my situational picture. These people have to be involved and maybe certain words have to be used. So now let's see if the KPIs are achieved. And if I know that every time Mark achieves his KPI is because he works with Dotan better than I can start predicting in a simulation. If you're working with Dotan, how you will achieve your next KPI and how you can work better in the future or what you have to do better. You know, maybe Dotan doesn't work well with certain words or the or sentiment in a so let's teach him either he to get better or others how to talk to him. You can get better. Because if we interact better, we can get better. 
And that leads to what we call the four, in our statistics, there are four major um, uh, causations, causes, I don't know if the right word in English, I apologize. It's all right. For someone, for an organization, not working according to its protocols. So out of 2,000 simulations, 2,346 to be direct, I checked before we got to this call today, <laughs> real simulations, okay? Not demos or real simulations. The um, the number one contributor, 38% of the events where people don't work according to their procedure, what would you think it'd be, Mark? Because most people say they don't know their procedure, but it's not that. That's where I was going to go. I was going to say people have a documented procedure, but then don't follow it. They just don't bring it to the table. So the number one reason is they don't understand they're in a crisis. They have not yet been able to create that picture. Uh-huh. And if you look at real events, that's the number one contributor. And we have seen that if you are able in your procedures to put an explanation of why that procedure exists, that number goes down. But if you start your procedures with do this, do that, without people understanding, without going into the cognitive essence of human beings, you will miss things. The number two reason, just so you know, is 28% really don't know their procedures. But if the procedure is up to five pages long, or the SOP or the protocol or whatever, then there will be an adherence level of around 90%. There will be a decline of 24% from page number six. So you tell me how long your procedures are. I can already start predicting how your people will know it. Number All three right, reason. Uh, hold, hold on, Dotan. I want to go back to that because that's that's brilliant. So the first five pages of meat of the plan, forget about the cover page and all of the blah, 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 and all that crap at the beginning. But the first five pages of the plan is going to have 90%. What was the word you used? 90%. Adherent. I call it adherence level. Okay. And, and then page six and on, it drops off by 24%? Starts dropping, yes. Wow. Of course, there are geographical and cultural, you know, there are differences. But if I look at it as a total, yes. All right. Let's go back to the 38%, the, the main reason that, that people don't act according to their, according to what you predict. You said it's because they don't realize they're in a crisis. Is that a problem with understanding triggers? Yes, I can give you an example. One of our clients is uh, going through a ransomware simulation. Yep. They were always taught that uh, they would get the information from the technical people. But this attack starts with the CEO. Mm-hmm. Now the CEO mm-hmm. gets this ransomware email. His computer is down. According to protocol, he should be reaching out to uh, to his tech team. But he's a CEO and he's ready. He knows how to negotiate or he thinks he knows and so on and so forth. And within minutes, he's already talking to the attacker. This is against all protocol. Now, the 22 minutes that he uses to negotiate are critical. He doesn't know how to negotiate with a cyber terrorist. Yep. He may be the fantastic negotiator with his personnel and you know business, but this is different. You don't know their ways. Is this uh, attacker government? Is it really for money? Is it, There are many, many different aspects here. And in the meantime, that, that time was lost on the team. Now, this is someone that knows the protocols. He knows the process. But he does not understand that what has just happened to him is different or it has the same implications as the procedure. Now, procedures, they start, A, this is when they start, you do this, do that, this has happened. But the reality is, how do you know that this has happened? 
you know, it's, and then it's how, what, how do you talk? What have you been told by your CISO or your CIO or the rest of the team? Right. If you begin a procedure, why the procedure exists, you will see a higher level of adherence, a higher level of people understanding why the procedure is there and it helps. I always have said, start procedures with a paragraph that explains why this procedure is there and do it in story fashion so people can read it and understand, make it simple, keep it simple. I love that. Listen, I, I think we could probably uh, talk we could, for another I have many 30 more minutes. Maybe but next we're, time. We are running out of time and I have to get to this question because I know that you're a music lover and I love that we have that in common. Uh, and you told me, yesterday that you were familiar with this question i guess the question is getting some some popularity here so let me ask you this dotan if you had to pick a song to be played as you walked up to the podium to speak what song would you pick and why so i'll tell you this mark i'm going to be a typical israeli and i'm not going to make it easy for you <laughs> i'm a big springsteen fan and if you asked me that question last week the answer would be growing up by bruce springsteen Okay. But today, after six days of battle and fighting, where our young are battling for their lives and ready to go in to whatever we have to do, today it's The Hitter by Bruce Springsteen. And when you look at the words, you will understand what I'm talking about. That longing to put down your head for a few minutes and rest before you continue the battle. Wow. You're not allowed to do that to me, Dotan. You're not allowed to get me emotional at the end of the podcast, but I appreciate you and thank you for being here. How can people connect with you and learn more about your approach and learn more about you in general? You'll be able to find us on LinkedIn. We have our website, Sinten.com. We're out there in the world. As you understand, my name is Dotan at Sinten.com. Anyone that wants, just reach out. We'll talk. I appreciate that. Thank you for being here. And uh, thanks for reaching out and suggesting that you come on. It's uh, I love it when people do that. Thank you so much for having me. And for all those that are listening, keep safe. I want to thank Dotan Sagi for joining me this week and telling us what it's like to be resilient in Israel during these turbulent times. And for teaching us about effective crisis management and good practices for running crisis exercises. The Resilient Journey podcast is a Resilience Think Tank production. Next week, we have a treat for you as we talk about cybersecurity as part of October being Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And we have a panel discussion with someone from Homeland Security, the FBI, and a consultant who helps organizations become cyber resilient. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey. Come to the door, Ma, and unlock the chain I was just passing through and got caught in the rain There's nothing I want, nothing that you need saying